policies and compliance are some scary conversations sometimes in special education. That's exactly why I'm bringing Kelly to the Special Education Inner Circle podcast. I'm your host, Catherine, and Kelly, thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So we're going to talk about compliance and creativity and big ideas in special education in a whole different way than I think people are expecting us to talk about. But before we jump into that, let's hear a little bit about your perspective or experience with the IEPs so we know what lens of experience you have. Yeah, thank you. Um, And I will say thank you for the introduction too, because prior to getting into um, advocacy work and regulatory work, I also thought they were very scary words. Um, So hopefully after this, people will feel a little more comfortable with it. Um, I actually started my career as a fourth and fifth grade teacher in rural Louisiana. And so my experience Um, with IEPs was really just having students in my classroom that had IEPs or 504 plans or needed other accommodations. So so I was able from an educator lens to really kind of, you know, come at it and understand special education services just with the kids that I worked with. I'm not a special educator, um, but worked with the special education team to, to make sure that what I was doing in the classroom follow the goals of the IEP and, you know, that we were all working together um, as a team on behalf of the kids um, that we, that we served. And and that experience really kind of propelled me into the world of policy um, because there was a lot that I saw in the classroom that, um, that I felt like just couldn't be changed until policy really changed. And that I felt like we could be doing so much um, better work on behalf of our kids um, through through some policy and you know um, law changes and things like that. So so I you know went to get my master's in public policy and and ultimately ended up um, uh, as a as a lobbyist. Frankly, working on behalf of children's health and education. So for the last fifteen years, have really been steeped in state and federal policy on all things related to children's health and development and education. Um, And now I have the privilege to work for Presence Learning, which um, provides live online um, therapies services to children in the K-12 system. So behavioral and mental health, occupational therapy, all those services that we know are in the IEPs that our kiddos need, um, we are able to provide um, virtually. And so it's been a great kind of blending of the education um, and the healthcare experience and knowledge that I have. I love that so much. I say all the time that I don't have time to wait for the policies to change. We're just going to get like the best that we can with the policies that we have, because you have to be called to policy work to be effective in policy work. (laughs) It is not something that comes naturally or easy to me. I'm all about finding the loopholes in the policy (laughs) and then figuring out how to get through that. So I I think that this is going to be a a great conversation because so many of us are scared of policy or it's not our kind of thing. It's not our niche. It's not our thing that we're going to go change and look into. So um, let's talk about idea law just a little bit, policies and funding. I know that you've had a lot of conversations over this past year and a half, especially of like what's happening and how are we going to make this work? So there's so many places that I could yeah. dive in. I'm literally just going to say like, 
you go like you tell us some of the hot topic things that we need to know right now because i can repeat to you the purpose and findings of idea law i can tell you how to write an iep we can tell you all those things but you look at things in a little bit bigger picture yeah um yeah, yes, and they, first I'll say, I always appreciate the people that can look for the loopholes and find those because you're 100% right. Um, policy is a long-term process. And so we need those, those loopholes and those creative thinkers while, while the other things are kind of happening. Um, this last year and a half, right, I don't, I don't have to state the obvious, I think flipped education on its head. Um, as it did the, the whole rest of the world, right? And I think that this is really a pivotal point that school districts and, um, you know, our school leaders and state officials, um, you know, are, are really at this very, you know, um, important, you know, point in thinking about how are we going to move this forward? What lessons are we going to take with us? Um, and what are we not going to take with us? You know, and I am, I'm, I'm hopeful um, that they really do take this opportunity to learn from the lessons and build a system that is really centered on the needs of our kids. I think for many, the education system is a one size fits all. Um, and I think that we, what we know, especially dealing with children with special needs and serving children with special needs, is that there is no one size fits all. And so how do we utilize this moment to create a system that is going to address the needs of each individual student? And that's not going to be pretty, probably, right? It's, um, it's going to take, to your point, some creative thinking, some big ideas, a lot of time and effort and resources. But I do think that there are a few big things in the policy world that can really help move things along. So one of the things I'll, I'll say is um, that I think is certainly top of mind is um, telehealth waivers, right? And access to telehealth, teletherapy, those types of services online. When COVID first happened, I think that, you know, everybody, when you heard telehealth, you thought, you know, patient to your doctor, right? It was all about how do we keep people out of the hospital that don't need to be in the hospital and allow them to see their provider. Um, so the federal government was very quick. CMS was pretty quick to add telehealth waivers as, you know, as a reimbursable expense under Medicare and Medicaid. And that was great. But very few people, I think, were actually thinking about the implications and how this was actually going to work in schools or school-based healthcare. Um, so I think when people naturally hear telehealth, they think very clinically and not so much about how it actually is being utilized or could be utilized in schools. So what we saw happen across the country is um, states implementing these telehealth waivers, really expanding access and opportunity um, to telehealth and teletherapy services. And they all did that under the public health declaration. What's happening now, though, is a lot of states are expiring their public health um, declarations. And so they're saying, great, our public health emergency is over. And so those telehealth waivers are no, are no longer needed. So one thing that I'm watching in particular and paying close attention to is which states are making those telehealth waivers permanent. Because my concern is that we, we took this big step forward in expanding access and allowing people to utilize telehealth teletherapy or telehealth, and now we're going to restrict that access because we think it's no longer needed. And what I think that we found is that for many students, certainly not all, but for many students, the virtual setting or teletherapy actually 
um, they thrived in. You know, um, a number of we we hear anecdotally from a number of parents that they actually enjoyed and appreciated doing. You know, having the speech language pathology services online or their occupational therapy because it was the first time where they were able to really see what their their kiddo or their student was working on. And so they could reinforce those things at home. Instead of those services being done at school, parents were far more engaged in the therapy sessions. Additionally, especially for some of our older teens and youth, they really enjoy doing mental health counseling virtually. It takes away um, you know, some of the stigma of walking into the counselor's office or um, you know, being afraid that they're gonna run into their social worker or whomever they're talking to confidentially in the grocery store, or you know, it be a member of the community. And so sometimes this virtual setting creates a level of anonymity that I think so many of our youth and our teens really um, responded to. So, so the first thing I would say is I, I'm hopeful and I'm watching the telehealth waiver conversation very closely. Um, and I would want to make sure that states continue to provide that access because I think for so many of our students, it really just provided um, an ability to access their services in a way that they didn't have before. Well, I, I literally wrote down two things because I'm like, right. I cannot, I cannot forget to ask these or I, I've got to say this to our listeners and I want them to hear this because some people were just like, yes, I loved all the teletherapy options and others were like, no, yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. It was, it was just awful experience. But here's the problem. I think most of the terrible experiences that we hear about is because it was a forced situation mm -hmm. with no other option. So I want everybody who's listening to this, who might not be on the side of like, well, you know what? You could be on either side. Yes, I love it. I want everything virtual. No, I don't like it. I want everything in person. It doesn't have to be in or conversation. It can be an and conversation. Yeah. So a lot of times we're so like, you can have this or you can have that. Well, right. if we're going to, you know, reestablish whatever this is in this upcoming school year, we can have some ands. We could possibly have in-person and virtual support for things. And it's important for us to get out of the, it's this way or the highway kind of mindset that we often have in special education. And so with that, the, the other thing that I wrote down is I would love for you to speak a little bit on that policy, mm -hmm. um, kind of like the roadblocks that we hit. So you mentioned like some states this, some states that. So yeah. we're, we have listeners everywhere, right? So somebody's going to go to their school district and say, so I listened to this podcast and they <laughs> said that you can offer my child telehealth. And so I want that. <laughs> and that's not exactly how it works. So can you speak a little bit to like kind of this policy that's like this elusive thing out there that might be stopping a school from having that um, choice or kind of uh, different ways to provide therapy? Yes. Great question. Um, because there, there, there are a couple, it's, it's a little complicated. There are a couple roadblocks. Um, and I will say again, the pandemic has really for the time being temporarily eased some of those or opened up some of those roadblocks. Um, but I still think that there's the ability for those to kind of come back. So the first I would say is really around Medicaid reimbursement. So Medicaid reimbursement or the Medicaid program is hugely important 
for children with special needs, right? It covers one half of all children with special needs are covered through the Medicaid and CHIP program. So our kids depend on that. And um, when IDEA was passed, um, Medicaid, subsequent Medi um, legislation identified Medicaid as the program to pay for those services, those supplemental services. So that's really where um, a lot of our students, um, uh, the states get reimbursement for is through the Medicaid program. What makes it a little tricky is Medicaid is a federal and state share program. So the federal government sets some rules and pitches in some dollars and the states pitch in some rules and some dollars. What makes this complicated is every state creates their Medicaid program however they see fit, right? So they may say our Medicaid program is going to cover telehealth services for occupational therapy, um, your IEP related services, maybe your EPSDT screening um, services, but we're not gonna pay for behavioral and mental health. Um, and another state may say, we're paying for it all, right? It's all reimbursed. And another state may say, well, we're only gonna pay for X number, you know, a certain duration and X number of hours. So it's not clear cut from state to state on what Medicaid allows. The other thing that makes it tricky is that not all schools participate in, in the Medicaid program. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, I think it's a complicated system sometimes to navigate from a billing perspective. Um, so not all, not all states get, get reimbursed those dollars. Um, so I would say that, that one of the barriers is certainly the Medicaid piece, because if your state is participating in, med, participating in Medicaid, they may not be getting the reimbursement that they, um, that they need for the certain services, right? They may not, they may only reimburse for a set number of services. Now, those services were expanded under COVID. In fact, we saw 31 states across the country expand the number of services that they were reimbursing for in Medicaid. Um, so that's a great sign. Again, I hope that that continues and that, you know, states don't take a step back, but I do think that there was this expansion of services covered under Medicaid that was really helpful. Um, so I think Medicaid is certainly um, a one piece. The other piece is the licensure piece. Again, every state requires different licensures, different qualifications, different number of hours of supervision to provide certain services. Um, one of the things that we have been very strong advocates of um, at Presence Learning is um, the use of compact um, legislation. So an interstate compact, and we have these for many professions. There's one for the nurse licensure compact. There's a medical compact, physical therapy, psychological, right? And now there's a speech language pathology compact and an occupational um, compact. What compact language does is essentially says, we're going to set up a commission, you know, one body, and we're all going to decide what licensure levels you know, need to be required, um, what, you know, background checks or criminal background checks or things like that. We're going to come up with one standard, right, one uniform standard that all compact participating states will use. So what that does is it really opens up the ability for, for providers to cross state lines and provide services in different states, right? So if we have an abundance of providers in one state, um, there's no reason that they couldn't be providing services, you know, behavioral mental health services in another state. So the compact just eliminates that administrative and kind of bureaucratic, you know, cross state license requirement and, and streamlines the process so that providers are able to, to act, you know, provide services to, to kids that need it the most. So I'm telling parents and teachers 
all the time to ask for the policy when it comes to special education stuff, like all the things. So it might be, you know, um, uh, you know, I think my child needs a one-on-one aid and they hear, we don't do that here. I say, ask for the policy. You know, when a a teacher is given directive to do something that maybe in her gut, she's just like, I don't know if that's like an appropriate education, like solution. You can say, okay, you know, that's fine. I don't know if the parents are going to be satisfied with that. Is there a policy to support this decision? I'm always saying, ask for the policy. Is this something that like, where do you, where do you go? Where do you go to find the, like, to figure out some of these policies? I mean, we've got some really good researchers as our listeners, like they will find things, right? We all know special education, parents, teachers, admins, therapists, like we find things, but where do you look? Okay. So I have some great resources and then I have some um, ways to engage or kind of to to advocate too. Um, and I'll try to make that feel less scary as well. Um, there are some really great telehealth resources out there. First, I would say any of the national professional associations have tremendous resources. So, so I actually defer a lot to the um, ASHA website, right? Or their resources, which, which is the Association for Speech, Speech Language and Hearing Professionals. Um, there's another really great um, resource that, and they just came out with a, um, a report, a 50 state scan of kind of where um, Medicaid is reimbursing school telehealth services. And that's, that, that report was done by the National Academy for State Health Policy. Um, and so that's a fantastic resource if you're interested in digging down a little bit more in the Medicaid piece and the, and the policy piece. Um, and there's another one on telehealth called the Center for Connected Health Policy. And again, they're doing some of these big 50 state scans of where you know telehealth is, is being utilized as well. So there are some really great resources out there of people, you know, organizations starting to dig into this kind of telehealth world or Medicaid reimbursement world if you're just looking for more information and, and for background on that. On the advocacy piece. So I think the tricky thing is, you're right, a lot of these decisions are not made at the school level, right? Or even the school district level. It's all trickling down from state and from federal. What I would say is, and I say this as somebody who used to to work in in a state Senate um, as a staffer um, earlier in my career, is I would reach out to your elected officials. If this is, or if these are issues that you are passionate about, or you wanna ensure that your state is not gonna roll back these telehealth waivers, or roll back any Medicaid reimbursement, um, I would be reaching out to your elected officials, um, your state elected officials. Um, And I know that that sounds scary for some people, and and I'm here to tell you it should not be. Uh, They are people too, and especially as parents and educators, um, people that work in schools, remember that you are the expert, right? Um, Our elected officials are fantastic people. I love them, I work with them all the time. They do great work. Um, but they can't be subject matter experts in every single issue, right? They depend on either the lobbyists or their constituents to give them feedback and advice and, um, you know, to gauge what issues are, are top of mind for people. So as you're thinking about reaching out to your elected official, um, I would say, remember that you're the expert. You're the one that actually has experience either in the classroom or as the parent of a child with special needs. Um, and that, that insight is invaluable. And that's something that um, they will really, I think, respond to and be thankful for. 
Um, Kelly, let me just ask yeah. you, I, I, I'm hearing my own self-doubt in my head. And so okay. I'm going to, I'm going to speak it out loud for everybody. Okay. Do they really listen? Like, does yeah. it make a difference? Like when you, when they say, call this number and leave us a voicemail, or when they say, just hit reply to this email, because they're campaigning yeah. or such, do they really listen? Yeah, you, they do. And I would say, so here's the tricky thing. They do when there's volume, right? So, and, and, and I, um, the advice I was given as a staffer um, was that if you hear a, on a topic from five different people, right? So it just took, it just took five, but if they got messages from five different people on an issue, that's when I knew I needed to elevate the issue to my Senator or to the you know member that I was working for. Also remember when you call that number, you are 95% probably going to get their assistant. You're not, you know, the Senator is not standing by just like waiting for your call. Um, and so remember that you're going to probably get somebody, an assistant, and you just call and say, I'm in your district, here's my experience. And this is the issue that I care really, you know, that I'm passionate about, or I really hope you increase funding for this, or, you know, make our telehealth waivers permanent. Um, the problem with that is, you know, in, in your self-doubt is you may not think you make a difference, but if you call and then four other people behind you call, um, then that's going to elevate an issue. And so you, you never know how many other people are calling on that issue. So we need to make a plan. That's what I'm hearing. Okay. It's like, here's yeah. your loophole guys. Okay. Do you hear what she's saying? What she's saying is get a phone tree with your friends and all pick a day that you're going to call when you need something like telehealth to be available in your schools. <laughs> you need a plan. A hundred percent. Yes. Utilize your networks and, and, you know, you can even copy the same email emails work too. So if calling is intimidating email, you can even tweet them. Right. I mean, it's just a way to engage and let them know that this is an issue that they need to pay attention to because it's important to their constituents and the people that elected them into office. I love that. I love it so much because that's where I was just like, okay, so how do we contact them? And does it make a difference? But you covered both of those. So now we've got homework to do, everyone. We've got homework. So she's telling us all the ins and outs of where to find all the policies of all the things that, you know, there are things that our decision makers that we deal with every day in special education, they honestly don't have the resources or the decision-making ability to change what is happening. It goes above them. We have to go sometimes outside of the special education system to get results inside of the system. So we've talked about your hope of what's uh, you know, we're, we're hoping is going to happen. You gave us some inside scoop on where things are going. Let's give some words of encouragement and some, you know, next steps beyond just advocating in that way of, of you know, you share something that's happening in presence learning or where you're kind of coaching behind the scenes in your network of what needs to happen next for us to take these lessons and put them to good use. Oh boy, I love that. I mean, I think there's so much right now, frankly, to be optimistic about, right? I will just say that, you know, sometimes we all just need a little nugget of hope, um, especially, you know, in the midst of all of this. One of the things I've been most hopeful about um, and most optimistic is that, you know, in the, you know, 20 years that I've been in the policy space, this is the first time I have ever seen this much attention paid to children with special needs and mental health. Right. Two issues that we have, you know, especially for the advocates out there that have been, you know, advocating for increased IDEA funding or, you know, all of those other things. Um, 
our children are finally getting, I think, the recognition that they that they um, have so long deserved. And so I am hopeful that that's only going to continue, right? There was $3 billion in, in the last federal bill, the American Rescue Plan dedicated to IDEA. Congress is now um, considering that in their appropriations bill to make that long-term investment in funding. So while I say that I am hopeful for that, I also don't wanna let our elected officials off the hook because the job is not done, right? Our federal obligation for IDEA funding um, when they passed it was supposed to be 40%. The federal government said, we're gonna put in 40%. We're at 14. So while, while I am hopeful and I applaud the success and I applaud the leadership of our, of our Congress and our president for making that happen, their job is not done. And so we as advocates need to make sure that we tell them their job is not done. Um, so I think that's, that's something that I am hopeful for. Um, I think that there's a lot of other great stuff that is just happening in terms of what the education landscape will look like. Certainly, you know, at, at Presence Learning, um, we're doing, you know, really great work around behavioral and mental health, around assessments, which can all be done virtually. All of our services are online. And we also have a platform. Um, you know, one of the things that I think our school districts struggled with understandably when COVID first happened was just not feeling equipped, right? Education was not necessarily in a technology. We are archaic. <laughs> Let's just call it out. Okay. Especially in our special education. Like we don't, we don't hold back here. And like, <laughs> we just call it like it is in special education specifically of providing yeah. services. We are archaic. We are behind our general education peers. We are yeah. behind our university systems. We are behind everywhere. And that became so apparent when everything got shut down and everything went to virtual access. We couldn't get like Chromebooks to our students right. to access things. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I have two children. I have a 10 year old and five year old. And so, you know, I'm, I'm watching their teachers as they're trying to get kids on Zoom classes and the technology difficulties. And I just thought, I'm so glad I'm not teaching now because if this happened when I was a teacher, it would be a different story, but um, they they were amazing. But I do think that, that through all of that, one, I think school districts, schools, parents, um, are more comfortable using technology in a way that they weren't before, right? I think technology and education was almost, you know, people are like, we don't, we don't need it, we don't use it, you know, it's not the right approach. And I think if anything, this has shown us that there can be some really effective um, technology tools that can be used and that can be implemented, especially by our children with with special needs. Um, and I think that the, the platforms, right? So when it when COVID happened, things you know there was there was Zoom and there was you know Google and maybe not FERPA or HIPAA compliant. And um, you know one of the things that that we do at Presence Learning is we do have our own platform, which was designed by clinicians for clinicians. It is FERPA compliant. It has all of the assessment tools and the professional development training that you need. So I think the advancements in technology, I think are just going to continue to get better and better. And I think the comfort level with people utilizing them is going to really open up access for our students and um, create efficiencies in a way that that didn't exist before. You know, in a virtual setting, you take out travel time. Right. And so for a school psychologist or an SLP who's having to traverse the city or drive out to a rural location, you know, they see, you know, a couple students a day and then they have to drive back or they have to account for that travel time. 
if you can do your sessions effectively in front of a, a screen, you're able to service more students too. And so I think right now, especially, you know, we are just hearing about the unmet need that is out there for behavioral mental health, or even just, you know, um, speech or occupational therapy. And I think that um, they're, they're really, these, these advancements are really just gonna enable us to service more students at a time when they really need it the most. I so agree. And again, I want to remind everybody, we're not talking that it has to be exclusive one or the other when it comes to virtual or in person, like don't shut down and like nod your head as you're driving, listening to this in a way that you're just like, "Mm -mm, no, my child does better with, or my students do better with hundred percent need to do what is appropriate for the child. Be open-minded to different delivery models because we're coming out of this uh, forced model that we've had, and we're going into what I hope is more flexibility. You know, it's more access, it's more flexibility in that. I'm going to totally point out because I don't talk about this a whole lot, but you brought it up. So I love it. Um, In this, where you talked about funding for IDEA, which is our, you know, we say IDEA law is supposed to provide this appropriate education to meet a child's unique needs, repair them for further education, employment, independent living. And in my role, I'm always telling parents and teachers like, and they can't talk about funding at the IEP table. No, no, no. Like you can't, which is true. You mm-hmm. can't talk about, you shouldn't talk about, it can't be an excuse if we can't provide an appropriate education because we don't have the funding. That doesn't mean that you as a stakeholder at the IEP table, a parent, teacher, admin, therapist shouldn't know what's happening when it comes to funding. So hear that statistic really clearly. It's supposed to be 40% funded, like your child's IEP and all the things that come with it, 40% funded by federal government. And it is 14 like, percent funded in there. So again, I'm not making excuses. I'm saying uh, go like hit rewind on here and listen to all the things that Kelly said to put together a little phone tree or your email chain that you need to go get funding for that. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, Kelly, that I don't know if, if you have insights to this part, uh, maybe, you know, something secret behind the scenes that mm. you feel to us, but do we see, um, any movement in that changing behind the scenes when you hear the, the whispers in the corner or people talking, like, is this a conversation that the political world, um, let's say at a local level or at a state level, are they having it of how to increase this funding? So that's a great question. And I wish that I was privy to those top secret conversations. Um, what I will say is, so IDEA is federal. So first, let me say, if you're going to reach out to your state level officials, talk about you know the telehealth waivers, Medicaid reimbursement, or even state spending on special education. States can, federal government had 40%, which means states had 60. Um, so put pressure on your states too. Um, but then if you, you know, if you're really interested in this IDEA funding on the federal level, that those are going to be your, con- your, your Congress people, um, your U.S. House and U.S. Senators. Um, here's what I'll say. I think that um, my, my concern based on, based on my previous experience is that you know, we tend to fund something and then, be, and then say, great, look, we checked the box. We funded it. Um, and then they wash their hands of it because they think the job is done. So that was part of my commentary about like, make sure that they are not off the hook. Um, because I do think as we get a little bit past COVID, 
the tendency for special education, funding on our kids, um, you know, we'll, we'll start to take a backseat again, um, like it has kind of, you know, historically. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm not super hopeful. That said, there are always champions, right? We, we have some amazing champions in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House that, that introduce bills every year to, to you know, increase that funding. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting to note is we are spending historic levels of, you know, funding right now. We are, you know, the American Rescue Plan, you know, billions, trillion dollar packages as you're hearing what the federal government is doing. The child health advocate in me says, I, I think we can also <laughs> increase the funding for kids. So, um, so I, you know, it seems, it does seem silly to me that as a country, we have not quite figured out how to pay for the federal government's obligation. I think sometimes, you know, what we see is people think, well, if we can get by with only 14%, why would we pay 40? And so I think part of the responsibility then is incumbent on the advocates to show like why 14 isn't enough. What, what else could we be accomplishing if we had full 40%? Where, what else would that get us? Because I think the, the, you know, the assumption is, well, we're okay, right? If we're at 14%, we're, you know, we don't have to get to 40. So, oh, so I man, like, that's that a whole conversation, right? Like there's so many teachers that just said, come into my classroom or parents that just said, come into my house. Come look at what 14% does. A hundred percent. And when, when they are, you know, when every issue is pitted against another issue for funding, you know, children will always kind of, you know, be at the bottom of that. I think, sadly, you know, it's, it's similar with our Medicaid budget. You know, children in the Medicaid budget, children account for, you know, they make up 50% of enrollment in Medicaid and they account for 20% of the cost. Um, yet anytime Medicaid conversations come up or budget conversations come up, they talk about cutting Medicaid. I'm like, you can't cut Medicaid. That's what's paying for kids, you know? But um, so I do think that kids will always get the short end of the stick when it comes to these big policy and funding conversations. There's just a lot of competition to go around. And as we all know, kids don't vote. And so since kids can't vote and they're, you know, they, they're not calling their senators and their representatives, it's incumbent upon the people that care about them and the advocates to do that on their behalf. I love this conversation so much. I feel like I, like, I just want to like steal all the facts out of your brain of all the things of like, okay, like where's all this going and who should we contact and what's going on? It kind of gets me fired up. So I want to make sure that everybody knows wherever you're watching this. So if you're watching on social media and there's a place to leave a comment, please do so. Every time you leave a comment, um, wherever you're watching, or if you're listening to this on a podcast, every time you leave a review or you make a comment there, it helps more parents and teachers get access to this, to this information that will help share it to others because we need more people knowing what's going on. In addition to that, you can leave a comment, leave a review, or find the links where Kelly's at, where Presence Learning is at, and I'll put some other links there that, of the places that you mentioned, and make sure that you're looking at these resources that are available so you can go big picture. A lot of times we're talking about the nitty gritty of like, this is how to organize the child school day, or this is how to make this IEP goal work. But sometimes we gotta step back and say like, okay, what is really happening in our community? And we need to figure some other things out. So um, Kelly, I wanna thank you so much for, being here and 
just for the work that you're doing and the intentionality that you have had to make sure that um, all children of all ability levels are being taken care of in our current system and working towards a better system, a better structure and better opportunities for them. And I know presence learning is one of those. So again, we'll, we'll put that link there. Um, any final thoughts of um, encouragement for our parents and teachers as they head into the school year? Oh boy, hang in there. I, you know, I will say, like I said, I'm, I'm a mom of, you know, I, I was in the trenches with, with all of you when we were, you know, probably homeschooling. And I know how difficult that is from a, a parent perspective. Um, I'll also say on a personal note, I'm married to a special educator. And so, you know, I have a, a special place in my heart for all of the special educators out there and all of the people that are touching the lives of our kids in so many ways. It is such impactful and important work. And so I just want to one thank you um, for having me on today. I've really enjoyed the conversation and thank everybody for listening because the fact that you're listening to this means you are already invested in the health and well-being of kids. And that's um that's all we can ask for. So thank you. Absolutely. All right everybody we'll chat next time. Mm -hmm.